The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Lord Jesus, all of this is for you. You are eternally worthy of all praise, past, present, and future. And we are so glad that we can be in your presence now and have you with us. And we are so glad that we can look forward to your presence forever. Thank you for all you've given us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In just a moment, Julia is going to sing a song uh, as a blessing to us and in worship to God. And as, as she does that, this is the part of the service where we also just invite you to consider gratitude and to consider how it is that God has blessed you and blessed us as a church in so many ways, so very, very many ways. Uh, and one of those ways is, is just the, um, the ability that he's given us to be able to keep ministries going. And, and there's lots of different things that happen in this church uh, in ministry, lots of things that we're looking forward to this fall as things continue to ramp up. And uh, if you feel led to to give financially towards uh, ministry uh, in our church, uh, this is a time perhaps to consider that. You can go online. For those of you who are at home, you can use our you can use your computer or your app on your phone. There's lots of different ways to give. Uh, plus, there's there's a, a giving basket at the at the back of the room that you can use later if you're here. Morning, church. Please stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's word. From Matthew chapter 2, verse 7 to 18. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them uh, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all of the the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel was weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much, Josh, for reading the scripture for us this morning. And 
And Julia, thank you so much for that song. Man, what a blessed song that was. And church, thank you so much for that song, Jesus, Lamb of God. I was weeping during you guys singing that. I really believed you. <laughs> what a great song. We haven't sung that for years. And uh, hey, I am really excited this morning. I'm kind of like a kid in a candy store because we're getting into the Gospel of Matthew. And I've been just anticipating this day for so long. So uh, forgive me if I, I kind of give you overload today. We'll try to tone it down in the weeks to come. But uh, there's so many good things to share starting out as we introduce the Gospel of Matthew. And um, of course, I want to tell you as well about something that's happening next Sunday evening. It's called Come to the Core. We do these every so often, and they're always about equipping you to learn how to follow Jesus Christ better in this culture. And what we're going to be really taking aim at is the fact that our culture around us is discipling us. There is a religion in this world that we realize maybe not so clearly as a religion, but it is actually very much got, got all the marks of a religion, and it is shaping uh, the influences upon us every, every day. And the, the question that we're going to address next Sunday evening in this room is, how do we identify what that religion is, what that discipling, shaping influence is that's all around us in culture, and then that's taking us away from Jesus, and then how is it that we are going to prescribe a way of living individually and together that will actually help us to counteract that because indeed, Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be countercultural in a good sense. We're not meant to be like some Christians who seem to have no, no, no way of interacting with our culture. But we're talking about looking at how is it that we can be countercultural as we follow Jesus and be aware of what's going on. So I give that to you. I hope you can join us. Um, we're not going to be recording it because we want to talk candidly about some of the shaping influences that affect us, and uh, I look forward to next Sunday. Um, yeah, so we're going to be into the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of weeks. Today and next week, we're introducing the Gospel of Matthew, and then we're jumping into the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, you've already heard Doug talk about the... Uh, journal that you can buy. They're out there in the foyer. If you want to run out and get it right now, you can. And uh, you also have an opportunity to take the insert in your bulletin and follow on the back and on the front. There's, there's notes for the sermon today. Or if you have the app on your phone, the, the sermon notes have been put live on the phone app just before the service. And you can actually fill in the notes as you hear me preach you can have your notes on your phone. If your thumbs work faster than mine, you probably can keep up. Um, and so there's three ways where you can take notes. Why do I say that? Because it's been proven that if you sit passively and listen to a message, you will retain and apply very little of it in the long run. But if you are engaged in taking notes, you will probably refer to it and actually has more of a chance of infiltrating your behavior, your habits, and the way that you live your life. Because we're all seeking to be better followers of Jesus Christ. This is one of the ways our churches has designed to, to help us do that together. Now, whenever you hear the term life path, you know that we're talking about what we do together at White Ridge Baptist Church 
in community spiritual formation, okay? It is a relationally based discipleship. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's the idea of path, a journey together, we're walking together, we're doing life together, eating together, praying together, studying the Bible together, and, and it's just the term we use, so don't stumble over life path. Life path, whenever you hear it here, is us saying, hey, we wanna walk together toward Christ-likeness, and we have a whole bunch of ways of doing it. Right now, the main way we're inviting you into it is by studying the Gospel of Matthew, and this fall it's gonna be the Sermon on the Mount. So with that as a brief introduction to what we're gonna be doing, let's jump into talking about the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll wanna have those uh, journals open right now because you might be wanting to circle or underline certain verses as we look through. And in those journals, today's sermon actually covers four blank pages. So you've got lots of room for notes if you choose to take them. So what we see, first thing to know in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, is that there is a prologue which covers chapters one to four, all about the birth of Jesus Christ and the beginning of his earthly ministry at the age of 30, okay? And then there is what's called an epilogue, the very last part, chapters 26 to 28, which is the passion of Jesus Christ, the, the death of Jesus Christ, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven, his final, final words to us as his people, his church on earth. So between those two sections of the prologue and the epilogue, there are five sections that Matthew intentionally describes in his, in his gospel, in his account of Jesus Christ. So between the beginning of Jesus' life and the end of Jesus' earthly life, we see five sections all having to do with Christ the King bringing in his kingdom to earth. Those five those five uh, points are outlined very clearly by Matthew, and he gives the clue in the text. You might want to go to these verses right now and just underline them. In chapter 728, it signals the end of the first section, which is from chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to study that from now until Christmas. And it's, it says, and when Jesus finished saying these things, that's your clue. That's your clue. He's done the first section, okay? He's moving on to the second section, which we'll start studying after Christmas. And when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, chapter 11, verse 1, we're, we're done the next section now. And he goes on to the next section, chapter 13, 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, guess what? We're done that section. We're moving on to the next one. Matthew's telling us. And then in chapter 13 or, or 19, verse 1, now when Jesus had finished saying these things, and then the final section, which is incredible, it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's what Jesus says about the end times, about his second coming, about the end of the world. He's saying, and when Jesus had finished saying all these things, and then we get into the very final epilogue, which is the final life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's an incredibly intentional gospel. If you've read the gospel of Matthew before, good on you. But I'm telling you, I've been reading it lately and I've been getting fresh new insight onto what Matthew designed as he wanted to portray to his generation and following generations who this Jesus is and why we should be his followers. So that's why I'm excited. Now, having said that just now, here is the next year and a half 
of sermons in our church, okay? Here we go. We're going to be in a couple more Sundays here in, in the prologue. Then we jump right into the Sermon on the Mount, which is going to be talking about kingdom values. What are the things that you as a follower of Christ should value? Then we get in in the winter, kingdom advancing. Christ's kingdom started advancing the first year of his earthly ministry. We see how he's getting territory. He's, people are following him. People are being healed, etc. Guess what happens after something advances? Opposition. We see the opposition to Jesus' kingdom advancing. And so that next section, Matthew, describes that. Spring of 2023, we're going to look at that. And then next summer, kingdom authority. Jesus uses a lot of parables in that section to describe the authority and the power of God's kingdom and how, how we should be enter, entering under that kingdom instead of the kingdom of the world. And then kingdom coming, this Olivet Discourse, the fall of 2023, before we finally get into the epilogue, which takes us up to Easter of 2024. And if God should so let us live long enough to do that, and me to preach, and us to preach, and, and Jesus doesn't return before that, then this is our plan, okay? And I'm really excited about it. If you haven't noticed, I'm really <laughs> excited about this series. What else do you need to know by way of introduction to the Gospel of Matthew? You need to know that Matthew has a big idea in his mind in the introductory chapters, and that the big idea is that Jesus succeeded everywhere that the nation of Israel failed. Okay, that's huge. That's very much on Matthew's mind. Now, this is important for us to know because the Son of God is like Israel was like the son of God and, and failed. And, and Jesus, the true son of God, now comes and succeeds everywhere. How do we know that? How do we know that? Let's start by saying, first of all, you know that Israel spent a whole bunch of time in Egypt, didn't you? And to fulfill the scripture, Josh just read it, Jesus' family went to Egypt, and out of Egypt I called my son. We know that Israel went through the Red Sea in the Bible in the New Testament. Hebrews talks about that being like a baptism. We know that Jesus went into the Jordan River and was baptized by John the Baptist. Israel went through the Red Sea and then received the law. Jesus went through the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. We see as well Israel spend then 40 years in the wilderness being tested by the devil, tested by other nations against them. Jesus, right after his baptism, goes 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness being tested by the devil and tempted. We see the blessings in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second law. Deuteronomy is the last book before the entering of the promised land for Israel. And what, how does it end? It ends with the blessings and the cursings. Israel, if you do this, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't do it, you're going to be cursed. And Jesus, what does he do starting the Sermon on the Mount? Two Sundays away, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the Latin word for Blessed. And so Jesus starts his public ministry with this blessedness. Hey, folks, do you want to be part of my kingdom? Here's the blessed way to, to live under my rule. This is the way I bless. And so we see this incredible parallel. What is the message that we should receive 
in seeing Matthew's introduction of Jesus in such a parallel way to Israel. We should see Jesus as a savior who succeeded in doing everything that Israel failed to do, everything that the law failed to do, everything that Adam failed to do as the first man, everything that Abraham failed to do, everything that Moses failed to do or King David failed to do. You name it, Jesus succeeds everywhere that everyone else failed. And guess what you and I should take home from that? Everywhere you and I fail, to live a life that's going to bring glory to God the Father, our Creator, Jesus can succeed in you. Jesus can be in and through and as you, the person that you cannot be by yourself. Jesus will make you the best you that God ever had in his mind when you were created. This is the message that Matthew wants to get through to us and apply to us. How are we going to unpack this morning's scripture? I'm going to do it in three little short outlines. First of all, B.C., then the birth of Jesus, and then A.D. So we're going to look at these in, uh, in fashion like this and uh, just examine how it is that Matthew introduces Jesus. Let's start with the first part. Jesus, the king, is coming. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you have ever had the experience that I have had when I was a younger Christian, and I turned over a new leaf, probably it was in January with a New Year's resolution, and I decided that I was going to start a new Bible reading program, and I decided that I was going to pick up the New Testament and read it from Matthew to Revelation. Have you ever, have you ever had that desire, okay? And so I sat down with my Bible and in the living room, and I opened it up to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and I read as follows the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, brothers, Judah the father of Paris, Zerah by Tamar, Paris the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father. Are you excited? <laughs> no, <laughs> good. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, I started into that and I was going like, what? I can't do this. I realized it was only 17 verses, but I thought, forget this New Testament thing. And you know what? You see, you, we would think in our day and age that if you're going to snag a reader, you know, you've got to start a book with some story that's going to grab the attention, not a family tree, you know? But that wasn't the way it was in Bible times. That wasn't the way the Jewish readers of the first century saw it. No, no, no. If you wanted to get their attention, you better tell me, who are you talking about? Because I'm not going to waste my time listening to you if this person isn't worth knowing. That's what he does. So he starts with a really important family tree to keep the crowd. Matthew's first two chapters are the birth announcement that changed the world. Now, folks, I, I, I had Kathy count for me. We've had 10 babies. We've had 10 babies born in this church. Not in the church, but I mean, <laughs> since January. And, and every one of those babies, I got something that was a birth announcement. And we were excited for those young families that, that were having babies. So fun. Babies are great. A great way to start humans, I think. And what's so special about this birth? Well, this birth announcement tops them all because of who it is. 
This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. And Matthew is so earnest that we get it, that we understand who this is. And so he says this is a Jewish king in the legitimate royal line of Judah, in the legitimate line of King David, and not just tracing his lineage back to David or to Judah, but to Abraham. You mention Abraham in any Jewish crowd, and you're going to get a, a, a turning heads. It's a pretty important person, Father Abraham. And so this is a king that's legit. Now, the previous 200 years, before the birth of Jesus, you need to know that there had not been one king over Israel that was in the line of David. Not one. Not one king in the previous 200 years. The present king at the time of Jesus' birth is, is Herod the Great. He has no blood, no royal blood in him at all. He's not even fully Jewish. He was a military commander that the Romans dropped into Palestine just because they had a political agenda, agenda in, in the Middle East. Okay? And, and so this is huge, this announcement of royal line all the way back to Abraham, Jesus Christ. I'm sure you're watching lots about Queen Elizabeth's death in these days. Uh, longest reigning monarch of the United Kingdom, 14 Commonwealth countries of which Canada is one of them, born in Mayfair, London, as the first child of the Duke and Duchess of York. Her father, King George VI, acceded to the throne in 1936 upon the abdication of his brother, King Edward VII, making Elizabeth the very next person in line, in royal line, to the throne. Her father dies in 1952, and automatically, Queen Elizabeth is crowned the Queen of England and served faithfully for the past 70 years years. Probably the whole world will be tuning in tomorrow at her funeral where there's over 2,000 guests from around the world invited to Westminster Abbey in London to witness the event. But the same day that Queen Elizabeth died, guess what else happened? King Charles was crowned king. <laughs> That's where that idea comes, long live the king. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's where that comes from because as soon as a monarch dies, it has to be that the next monarch is announced. And so King Charles was announced. Royal succession protocols and rules had to be followed. No different in Bible times. No different in Bible times. And so in Bible times, Matthew is introducing King Jesus trying to convey the very importance of this king. Now, we don't have time to get into these verses, but I want you to know that Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 17, you'll notice, describes that there are 14 generations, 14 generations, sorry, I wanted to show you the picture of the queen there. There's 14 generations from Abraham to David, there's 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and there's 14 from the Babylonian exile until the birth of Christ. There's actually more, okay? Just so you know, so I'll say this right now. Matthew is not a mathematical historian. That's not the purpose of his writing. All the Jewish readers that first read this knew, well, there's a few kings missed in there in this royal succession plan. And that wasn't the point. You see, if you take this as, it, as Matthew intended it, 
you have 14 groups, three groups of 14 names. And if you want to break it down, you could say six groups of seven names. Seven is the most important symbolic number in all of the Bible. And for a baby to be born at the beginning of the seventh seven was not just like, oh, ho-hum, another baby coming. No, no. For a baby to be born at the beginning of the seventh seven means this is the culmination of everything that's come before in this list. Now this one matters. And so Matthew is announcing this King Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited-for King of the Jews that is going to usher in the kingdom. He's saying that. The Jews would have understood that. And so... Again, Matthew is indicating this is no ordinary birth announcement. This is the baby that Israel's been waiting for generations for. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. Secondly, we talk about the birth of Jesus this morning. Can you put yourself back into into first century Palestine? There have been 400 years since they had had heard from a prophet of biblical stature speak. A Malachi, perhaps. 400 years, of course, again reminding you that there's a parallel between Israel's history. 400 years in Egypt before God raises up a deliverer, Moses. 400 years of dark ages between the Old Testament and the New Testament before God raises up the deliverer, Jesus. Okay? Matthew is very intentional in what he mentions. And here is this incredible moment in time Dominated by a foreign power, Israel has tried various rebellions to overcome Rome. Every one of them has been stamped out. And then in the fullness of time, an angel appears to a virgin, a teenage girl, and tells her, you're going to be with child, and the child that you bring into this world will be the savior of the world. At the same time that the angel has visited her, he visits her her fiancé, Joseph, and the angel tells Joseph as well that don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her already is by the Holy Spirit. And so this is a a miraculous birth. In In the Matthew Gospel, he follows the picture from Joseph's side. In Luke's account of the birth narrative, he follows it from Mary's side, but both of them have one intent. Both Matthew and Luke have one intent, and that is to prove that this is a miraculous birth and to stamp out all the rumors. You see, there's been lots of rumors about this illegitimate child. Jesus would have grown up with a lot of slander, not being Joseph's legitimate child. There were rumors that they'd gone off to take a census just because she was pregnant. You know what people do. They go and disappear for a while and come back. Oh, we adopted them. And then the run to Egypt, all that was to buy some time. There's rumors, folks. What's Matthew's account giving us? Here's the record. I'm going to set it straight. This is the truth. That's what Matthew's doing here. And so Matthew wants to set the record straight. And it's interesting, the names that he gives Jesus in these opening chapters. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's called his name Jesus, for he shall save. It means Savior. He'll save his people from their sins. They called his name Emmanuel, means God with us. In 2, verse 2, where is the one born king of the Jews? 
The wise men say, where is he? He's the king of the Jews, the one who will shepherd my people Israel, uh, a, a prophecy from Micah. He shall be called a Nazarene. The, the word Nazar comes from Isaiah 11. It means branch. A branch will come out from the stump of Jesse, the root of David, and this branch is going to bear fruit. Jesus is that branch, that Nazarene. You see, there's so much going on here. And then he's, this is my beloved son at his baptism. God the Father speaks, and he says, this is my beloved son. And then immediately Jesus is whisked away by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted. What is the first thing that the devil says to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Prove your messiahship, your kingship, your legitimacy by performing some little tricks. Jesus didn't respond. He responded with the word of God. You see, these, these titles are telling us something of how Matthew's introducing Jesus. He is introducing Jesus, these descriptions of the importance that he places on. This is fully man, fully in the royal line of descent, fully anointed and appointed by God to shepherd his people, fully God in flesh, son of God, son of man, meets all the requirements needed. And um, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about it in terms of the way that sometimes we think about worldview. There are five big questions that describe your worldview. And I want you to think about how Jesus would have answered the questions based on the way that Matthew describes and introduces Jesus. First of all, how would Jesus responded to the question about his origin? Where did I come from? <laughs> Jesus knew he had come from the Father. He was the Son of God. What would Jesus say in answer to the, que or to, in the question, who am I? He knows he's the son of Joseph and Mary. He's in the line of Judah, right from David and Abraham. He, what would he re respond to in terms of what his meaning is? What is the purpose of his life? Jesus knew that he came to be the savior of the world and to shepherd God's people into his kingdom. That's according to Matthew. And what is the morality that he's choosing to live by? How should he live? Jesus is going to teach us how to live in, in this next section, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, over and over again, teaches us how to live. It's in communion with the Father. It's not a code ethic. It's not a list of rules of do's and don'ts. It's walk in communion with the Father. Nobody did that perfectly like Jesus did. That's how Jesus wants you and I to live. And then finally, what is Jesus' destiny? What happens after he dies? Well, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He had come to accomplish through his death what no other death could accomplish, the forgiveness of sins, the offer of grace to every one of us, every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve, sinners inherited, forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ and what he did through his death. Incredible. I'm gonna refer to this five big questions in a few weeks because I'm going to come back to it when we start into the Sermon on the Mount and ask you and I if we have these answers figured out for ourselves because I believe that every Christian should have answers for these five questions and should be directing their lives in, in the line of these five answers. Well, let's go in now to the final part of the morning message and that is after his death. 
or after, after Christ, which is not after his death, it's, it's after his birth. And uh, the king has come. Now, what, is, what does Matthew say? In Matthew chapter 2, and beginning in verse 1, he describes the most important event after the birth of Jesus. Now, this should, this should make your ears perk up. You should be really interested in what's the most important event, to Matthew anyway, after the birth of Jesus. He turns the whole thing into a description of what happened. And he describes it by saying that in the days of the evil King Herod, there were some magi, wise men, who came from the east. They weren't part of Palestine. They came from the east. And and they came looking for one who was born king of the Jews. And God had put a certain star in the sky. And these guys were astrologers. The name magi, the word magi can refer to astrologers. In ancient literature, it can refer to interpreters of dreams and, and other strange happenings. And these people were not just kind of... Um, superstitious wingnuts. They were seen as wise men. They were seen as people who, who needed to be listened to. And so when three wise men, and we don't know there were three, we know there were three gifts they brought, but when these wise men came into Herod territory, announcing that they're looking for one who's been born as a king in his territory, kings get a little upset when another king is born in their land. And so King Herod is on edge, and he pretends to aid them, and he wants to know the whereabouts of this king that they're pursuing, because he says he wants to go and worship him as well. Isn't that wonderful? King Herod, so, no. No intention of worshiping. The wise men find Jesus led by the star to the very house that Jesus is living in by now. This is maybe two years old, and and they fall down in worship to this little child king, and they open up gold and frankincense and myrrh, all that rich stuff to help them in their trip to Egypt that was coming. And then, guess what? An angel warns them in a dream. Don't go back to Herod. Go home another route. And so they, they do. And he is furious. King Herod is so angry that he he organizes immediately a battalion of Roman soldiers and they take off. They take off to Bethlehem a couple miles away and they slaughter every male child that is two years old and under. Just to bring that home, I thought about, I started thinking about the male children that have been born in our church in the last two years. and of course God in his mercy warns Joseph and Mary and they go to Egypt until King Herod dies and then they can return incredible story we don't talk about that part of Christmas do we I mean we don't there are no famous Christmas carols that sing about the slaughter of the innocents there are no Christmas cards that we give to each other depicting the events of Matthew 2 We rather would talk about the hallmark version of the babe in the manger in Silent Night. But we need to know the history and Matthew's intent on us knowing the history that the birth of the true king was the most threatening thing that could ever have happened to the false king, the apostate king, the fake king, the imposter king. And so Herod was upset. 
all giving legitimacy to Jesus Christ, the true king. It's interesting that the very next time that we hear about a Roman king disturbed about King Jesus is Pilate. And we read about it in chapter 27 of Matthew. And you know the story how Jesus stands already being beaten before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And, Ma- and Matthew tells us that, that Pontius Pilate just has this, this guilty conscience and way, and he just tries to wash his hands of it. He literally takes a basin ahead of all the crowd and washes his hands, and he says, his blood be on you and on your children. And then he released Jesus to the Roman soldiers. Do you know what they did? They put a crown of thorns on his brow. They mocked him. They put a scarlet robe on his back that kings wore. They put a reed in his hand instead of the scepter that a king would carry. And they spit on him and slogged him. And and they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they led him out to be crucified. The Son of God is completing the work that the Father had given him to do. The Son of God is being successful where Israel and Adam and Law and Abraham and Moses and David and everybody else before him had failed. The Son of God is leading a people into victory through the cross. Incredible, incredible story. Oh, how we want to know Jesus more this year through the Gospel of Matthew. We have a tour guide that is a first-hand witness. We have an apostle who has lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, taught by Jesus. We have the record here in our Bibles, and we have the Holy Spirit of God to help us understand these things because the path of discipleship that Jesus is training the 12 in is the same path of discipleship that he wants to train you and I in. Even in 21st century Canada. Even as the culture around us is seeking to disciple us away from Jesus, we have a Savior who has given us the resources to be discipled under his lordship and kingship. And we want to say yes. We want to say yes, Lord, have your way in our hearts. There is an old document that I've mentioned before. It's called the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus. It's from the second century AD. And it's a man, Mathetes is simply the word for disciple. So he's an anonymous disciple of Jesus that's writing to a friend and telling him, explaining to him the Christian faith. And I want to just read a few excerpts from that letter to him. He says, this messenger, and he's referring to Jesus as the messenger from God, he sent, was it for the purpose of exercising tyranny or of inspiring fear? By no means. That's not why God sent Jesus. 
But under the influence of clemency and meekness, as a king sends his son, who is also a king, so God sent him, as God, he he sent him, as to men he sent him, as a savior he sent him, as seeking to persuade us, not to compel us, but to persuade us. And when the time had come, which God had beforehand appointed for manifesting his own kindness and power, how the one love of God through exceeding regard for men did not regard us with hatred, no, He did not thrust us away from him nor remember our iniquities against, but showed great long-suffering. He bore with us. He himself took on him the burden of our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for the, the holy one for the transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for the, immor- for the mortals." For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and ungodly, could be justified before God except by the Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in the single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify so many of us as transgressors. By both these facts, he desired to lead us to trust in his kindness, to draw near to him, to esteem him as our nourisher, father, teacher, counselor, healer, wisdom, light, honor, glory, power, and life. This is a man telling his friend in a letter in the second century, why he needs to come to Jesus. Why Jesus is the King of Kings and worthy of all honor. Matthew has introduced us to a king this morning. Is he your king? And Jesus has said that his kingdom is not of this world. Do you want to be part of Jesus' kingdom? If you do, I want you to take that little green insert that's in your bulletin, take it out, and you'll notice every week on the back of this little insert and in the app and in the sermon notes you'll see that there's a little box that has a challenge looks like this and so this is the way you might want to begin this week you might just want to say to Jesus directly you pray to him and you tell him about the areas where you've tried and failed then ask him to reign on the throne of your height as king and lord even in those messy areas even in those areas of repeated failure that Jesus Christ would prove his grace to you even as he has to so many of us God bless you Lord Jesus we read of you in in your word we read that anyone who confesses with their mouth that you are Lord and believes in our heart that you've been risen raised from the dead will be saved. And today we gather together here, we stand here before you and we confess that you are Lord. You are the true king and all that that brings with it in terms of how we live and what we value and how we love and what this life is for. You are the king and we are for you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.